The first scripture reading for today is from the book of Psalms, chapter 127, verses 1 and 2. Unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. It is in vain that you rise up early and go late to rest, eating the bread of anxious toil, for he gives to his beloved sleep. The second scripture reading is from the book of James, chapter 4, verses 13 through 17. Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. We're in the fourth week now of this summer Psalms series, going through the book of Psalms. Uh, Two weeks on the subject of anger with God, a very personal, practical topic. And then last week we, we had a big global topic of God's passion and desire to be known in every nation, worshipped among all peoples. So this week, to keep things balanced, we're sorry for those of you who are sitting in the sun, by the way. It's just the angelic light that's bathing you as we speak together. Um, So this morning, we're going back to another personal topic, practical topic, which is uh, this, this psalm slash proverb we have in psalm 127 you know this one sounds very different than the other ones we've looked at so far if you noticed and the reason for that is it almost it sounds more like a proverb um you know there's no it's not a prayer like the first one we looked at there's no call to praise like the second one we looked at and the reason it sounds like a proverb is because it was written by solomon the guy who wrote proverbs so this is called a wisdom psalm which basically means it's just like a little piece of Proverbs that snuck over into Psalms. Um, you know, David was the psalmist. Solomon's father, David, was the poet, the artist, the songwriter. And Solomon's thing was administration and practical and wisdom. But you almost get the sense that, that Solomon was like, well, I can write Psalms too. You know, so he writes a couple of Psalms and they're just Proverbs in the form of a Psalm. So he was kind of a, a one-trick pony. Um, but what's nice about the Proverbs as opposed to the Psalms, is how direct they are, how in-your-face they are about telling you what to do. We all like to be told what to do. You know, people say the opposite. Nobody likes to be told what to do, but that's not true. We don't like to be told what to do by our friends or our family, but we love to be told what to do by experts. This is why self-help how-to books are such a a racket. Uh, It makes so much money because we all have this sense that we're doing it wrong. We, we have this sneaking suspicion that we're doing it wrong, and we want somebody to tell us how to do it right. So you have all these different books for all these different types of issues. You know, here's, how, here's the way you should eat, and here's the way not to eat. Here's the way you should exercise, and here's the way not to exercise. Here's the way you should invest, and here's the way not to invest, etc. And what Solomon is doing here is just like that. The whole book of Proverbs is like that. Just this very direct, in-your-face, self-help advice Here's the smart way to do it, here's the right way to do it, and here's the dumb way to do it. And what's provocative about this particular proverb slash psalm is that the dumb way, what he identifies as the dumb way, is the way that most of us do it. 
So it's kind of incendiary. He says, here, if you're, you're smart if you do it like this, but you're not so smart if you do it like this over here. So what I want to do this morning is just look at those two ways. We'll just have two sections to the sermon. First look at the not-so-smart way of living, what Solomon calls vain, and then look at the, the smart way, the correct way of living. And correct not in the sense of morally right and wrong. We're not talking about morality this morning. We're just talking about uh, right and wrong and utilitarian, functionally, uh, obtaining the desired outcome, which is a happy life. So the not-so-smart way and the smart way according to Solomon. Those will be the two sections of the sermon. So first, the not-so-smart way. And as I said, that's not the label that he uses. He doesn't call it the not-so-smart way. He calls it the, the vain way. He uses that word vain three times in these verses. He says, you build in vain, you watch in vain, you get up early and stay up late in vain. So what does this word vain mean? I think to get the full sense of it, we have to combine both usages of that word today. Um, We have two different ways we use the word vain today, and we often don't connect them to each other, even though they're the same word. So the first is vain in the sense of you're vain, you you care too much about your appearance, or you kind of are self-important. You know, this is the, the Carly Simon song, You're So Vain. You probably think this song is about you, don't you? Don't you? Um, and that's the first sense in which we use the word today. You're, you're kind of obsessed with yourself. The second place you see this word pop up is with the phrase in vain. So purposeless, pointless, without any reason. You know, the, the soldier killed the enemy combatant in vain because the battle was already over. The, the outfielder threw home in vain because the runner had already crossed the plate. There's no point to it. And, you know, what we don't think about is the same word. Why, why does the same word pop up in these two different contexts? And I think you see the connection here in these accusations that, that Solomon is making of us. Because what you have is a combination of the two. He's not, when he says it's vain that you do these things, and you could translate it either way. You could translate it, it's vain that you do these things, or it's in vain that you do these things. When he says that, he's saying both at the same time. He's saying not only is it pointless that you do these things, but it's also self-important and proud. It's proud and pointless. It's an exercise in egotism and futility. And the only thing worse then doing something completely pointless is being really proud of yourself for doing it. And that's what he's accusing of us. Uh, he says, you, you think it's so great, and it's accomplishing nothing. Vain. So what does he call vain? Three things, as I said. Uh, we'll save the, the third one for just a moment. First, the, the first two. He says, unless the Lord builds the house, the workers labor in vain. And then he says, unless the Lord watches over the city... What, what is that? This is, well, just ignore all that. Um, unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchmen stay awake in vain. So if you, if you combine those together and kind of generalize it, we could paraphrase that as, as, unless the Lord is involved in a project or supportive of a project, all human effort is in vain. And the first thing we should say about this is, is, how do we know this is true? Because it's not in any sense self-evident. It's not in any sense obvious. In fact, the burden of proof seems to definitely be on Solomon here. Because if, if that's his claim, and without God's assistance, without God's support, all human efforts or projects are, are pointless or in vain. 
uh, we can think of plenty of counterexamples. You know, all the buildings around you, for example, most of them were not done with prayers at the beginning of every construction session. Most of them were not done with any acknowledgement of God at all. So we see all sorts of completed projects that don't have any reference to God. Well, how does he get away with this saying, unless the Lord builds, it's in vain? I think he has two different things in mind, one of which is more rare and not as applicable to us, but the second of which is is very common and very applicable to us. First, the, the more rare and less applicable one, just to identify it. He may be thinking of a situation where God actually intervenes and opposes you. And as I said, this doesn't happen very often, but he, when he talks about a building being in vain unless the Lord supports the project, uh, he might be thinking of, in particular, this one example in the early chapters of Genesis, uh, this ancient building project, the Tower of Babel, where the, the builders set out with this explicitly anti-God attitude. The whole point of the project is we can do this without God's help, and we're going to build this building that's as high as God and demonstrate that we are equal to God. And God says, well, no, that's not going to happen. And so he, he could have, what he could have done is come and just knocked it down, but he's more creative than that. So instead they wake up one day and all of a sudden they all speak different languages. They can't communicate and they just have to abandon the project. You know, have got this half-finished tower there for however long. And the Tower of Babel is never completed. And so that could be the first thing that Solomon's thinking of. Unless the Lord supports it, that you build in vain. All of their effort was in vain up to that point because they were vain. And he could be thinking of a scenario like that. But like we said, that doesn't happen very much. So what's, what's the more common scenario? The more common scenario in which this is still the case, that unless the Lord builds with you... I'm trying to, is it rain? I'm trying to discern if there's a, a beat or a rhythm or if it's just random. But anyway, um, so if, unless the Lord builds with you, uh, the, you build in vain. The, the more common scenario that you could be thinking of is a situation that's actually, actually worse than this situation where God directly intervenes and opposes you, which is God, God doesn't. God just lets things run their course. He lets you complete the project successfully. And in this, he's actually dealing with you more harshly than if he were to oppose you because the project was the wrong project to begin with. It's a project that doesn't satisfy. It's a project that doesn't bring to you what you thought it would bring to you. And so you're successful, quote-unquote, but the thing you were seeking you still don't have, even though you've gotten what you're after. And there have been many uh, odes to this sort of phenomenon on film. A lot of the greatest movies ever made are about this sort of thing. So Citizen Kane is probably still the best one, the William Randolph Hearst story. And you remember those scenes, just this empty house. It's so eerie. And this guy that, that wanted it all and got it all, and then it's, it's worth nothing to him. Uh, there was the Aviator 10 years ago or so, the Howard Hughes story, same thing. My favorite of these is probably the one from uh, six or seven years ago, There Will Be Blood. Daniel Day-Lewis won the, the best actor for this, this guy that's just possessed. He is going to build this oil empire. And he, he overcomes remarkable obstacles, this, these insurmountable odds. Just by sheer willpower, he powers himself to the top and, and gets everything he was seeking. And yet at the end, he's still consumed by all the the rage and all the bitterness and all of this anxiety that drove him to that point to begin with. It was all in vain. He won. He completed the project, but it was all in vain in the end. I think that could be the second scenario that Solomon's thinking of, because God wasn't in it. He did it himself, and yes, he did it, but it was in vain. 
And it's this second scenario that I think applies to the third usage of the word vain, which I told you we'd get to, which is when he says, it's in vain that you rise up early and go late to rest. And again, this does not seem self-evidently true. So he's saying it's, it's in vain that you cheat yourself of sleep, that you try to cut down on your hours of sleep. There seems to be nothing self-evidently true about that. We all can think of people who are very successful, and part of the secret of their success seems to be that they sleep very little. That seems to be kind of one of the principles of working hard and getting ahead is cut down on your sleep. And people that do that are always vain about it. They always want you to know how little they sleep. It's something that they're proud of. And yet Solomon says, it's vain, it's pointless. How can he say that? Well, listen to what he says next. In vain you rise up early and go late to rest eating the bread of anxious toil. So what he doesn't say is you're not going to have bread. He admits that if you rise up early and if you go late to rest, you will always have bread on the table versus the sluggard, who is this other character in the book of Proverbs that that pops up that goes hungry because he sleeps too much and so he doesn't have anything. So you're not falling into that trap. You're, you're going to have plenty to eat. You're going to have plenty of bread if you rise up early and go late to rest and work hard all day. But the question is, what kind of bread is it? And he calls it the bread of anxious toil. And the implication is the bread of anxious toil doesn't taste very good because what you had to do to get it ruins your enjoyment of it. You're so tired, and you're so anxious, and you're so stressed that it doesn't really matter how much food you have. It doesn't matter how good the food is because you can't enjoy it. You can't actually receive that as a gift. Uh, Mason Cooley was this English professor at Columbia in the 60s, and he was known for coming up with these witty aphorisms. And one of his lines that's applicable here is, When I pray for success, I forgot to pray for sound sleep and good digestion. And that's kind of what, what Solomon's talking about here. It's the bread of anxious toil. Who cares? You know, it's the, there's these other proverbs about what good is it if you have, it's better to have a crumb in peace than to have this amazing dinner with strife. And that's what he's talking about here. What good is it? It's the bread of anxious toil. So in vain, you rose up early and you went to bed late in vain. There was no point to any of it. That's the, the not-so-smart way to live. He thinks of it as counterproductive, he thinks of it as unwise, and he thinks of it as ineffective. So now let's shift to the second section of the sermon. What's the right way? What's the smart way? What's the better alternative? And what you may have been thinking as we were talking about the, the not-so-smart way, the ineffectual way, is, well, okay, so what am I supposed to do? Just give up? You know, just do nothing? Just not try at all? Unless the Lord builds, the builders build in vain... But I can't control whether the Lord builds or the Lord doesn't build. So all I can do is just do my part. You know, what do you want me to do? Just sit here and, and you know, wait for God to act and I don't do anything? And that's not it. That's definitely not it. And you can actually see that that's not it in the words of the psalm itself. Because what it doesn't say is, if the Lord builds, then you don't need builders. If the Lord keeps watch, then you don't need watchmen. It doesn't say that, and you might think it would. You know, it almost makes sense that, well, if God is the difference maker, if without God it can't happen, then I don't really matter. But it doesn't work like that. It doesn't logically follow that just because you need God to get it done, then God's going to do it without you. Because he's not. He's not going to do it without you. He could do it without you if he wanted to, but that's not the way he chooses to work. He chooses to work collaboratively. So you still have to do a lot of the things that you would have done anyway.
way and done before. You still are going to go out and build. You're still going to have your plans for the building. You're still going to schedule the watchman on the wall. In fact, to the casual observer, it may look from the outside like nothing's changed. You know, you see this person that's living this smarter way, this better way, and you're going to observe them and say, well, they're doing all the same things I am. They're still having to do all the work, so what's so much smarter or better about it? And the shift is in attitude. It's a shift in attitude and mentality and approach. And so what I want to spend the rest of the sermon doing is giving you three tests, introducing these three tests or barometers that you can use to assess yourself and know whether you've made this requisite shift in attitude and approach and mentality. Because it's subtle. You're going to do all the same things on the outside, but there's a different mentality on the inside. And these three tests will give you a glimpse into yourself of whether you've made that shift or not. So what are they? First test is the test of the way you talk. Let me read you this verse that Jane read earlier. This passage, you can follow along on your program if you like. This is from the book of James. Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this for that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it for him is sin. James is kind of this fiery guy. He gets angry with people and he calls people out. And he's heard these guys talking and it bothers him. So now he's going to write a letter about it and talk about how dumb they are. He says, I heard you talking. You know, oh, today or tomorrow we're going to go and make a profit. And he says, you idiots, you could die tomorrow. You know, you have no idea what's going to happen tomorrow. Don't talk like that. That's arrogant. That's sin. And you say, well, so what? You don't make plans? You don't plan what you're going to do tomorrow? And like we were just saying, that's not it. You still make plans. It's an issue of attitude. His issue is, I could tell by the way you were talking. I could tell by your tone. I could tell by the words you were using that you were presumptuous, that you were vain, and that you weren't giving any place for God in your plans. If it was rather the case that you had surrendered to God and were including God in your plans, I would have picked up on that. I would have picked up on it in your phrasing and in your tone of voice. And the, the, the shift he recommends is very simple. He just says, instead of saying today or tomorrow, we will do this or that, he says, say, if the Lord wills and we live today or tomorrow, we'll do this or that. Now, it's not as simple as just adding that phrase to the beginning of everything you say, you know, like a little, little tag. And it can devolve into something rote and meaningless and very silly. So, for instance, I, I read a great article recently on the usage of the phrase inshallah in Egypt, which is this exact phrase, God willing, the exact phrase that, that James recommends. And I'm not picking on Muslims here because the, the reporter was saying that Christians have fallen into the habit in the exact same way as, as Muslims in Egypt. It's, it's widespread practice that this word in Shalah, God willing, has just become a verbal tick. So you just say it with everything, kind of the way we say the word like. Um, and it, even in scenarios where it doesn't really make sense or it's kind of out of place. So the, the reporter documents a couple of humorous examples. You know, he goes to McDonald's in Cairo and says, can I get a burger without onions and the guy behind the counter says god willing and you know the elevator operator says to a woman are you going down and she says god willing or he's it can be used evasively too you know so are you coming to my party on saturday well god willing um or you know sometimes it's just completely illogical so he asks this guy what's your name 
And the guy says, my name's Mustafa, God willing. And so your name is Mustafa or isn't it? Your name is already Mustafa or it's going to be Mustafa? And it's just, it's just needless words. It, there's, it serves no purpose at all. And it, it runs exactly counter to something Jesus says elsewhere, which is let your yes be yes and your no be no. You know, there's that, the first rule of Strunk and White, the, the style guide, elements of style. The number one rule is omit needless words. And E.B. White talks about remembering Strunk, his professor, English professor at Cornell, you know, hammering that into the class, omit needless words. And Jesus was the same way. Jesus hated needless words. He hated filler. He hated empty phrases, especially when they were religious and supposedly carried religious content, but really had lost all meaning. So it's not a matter of, okay, so now everybody at LMCC will just say, if God willing, you know, before whatever else we say. It has to come from the heart. It has to come from your approach, the way you think, and it'll bubble up naturally into the way you talk in a natural way. It's a test. It's a barometer. The way you talk. Are you acknowledging God in your plans, or are you proceeding as if God played no part in what you were attempting? The second barometer is the way you you pray. First, the way you talk. The second test is the way you pray. And this one's pretty straightforward. You know, if, if it says, unless the Lord builds the house, those who labor build in vain. So let's say you're building something. Presumably, you don't want to labor in vain. You want it to be fruitful. You want it to be for purpose. And if you really believe that first part, unless the Lord builds the house, your labor is going to be in vain, then it's going to be all you can do to suppress praying. You're going to have to pray because you know that without his assistance, it's going to all be for nothing. You're going to say, God, I'm building. I'm doing everything I can do, but I want you to build with me. I want you to come alongside me and work with me. Don't let me waste my life. Don't let me waste my time. I don't want this to be in vain, so build with me. You know, if you're working on something and you know someone who... Uh, if you just called them with a stroke of a pen, they could get the whole thing done 10 times faster than you could. The only reason you're not going to call that person is A, out of pride, or B, because somehow you don't really believe that they can do it. And that's what we have here with prayer. If you really believe this, if you really believe it's true that unless the Lord builds the house, your labor is in vain, then you're going to be calling out to God, saying, God, come alongside me and work with me. I hope I'm doing what you want me to do. If I'm not, show me to do something else. But if I am, why wouldn't you want to help me? Why wouldn't you want to establish the work of my hands? Now, like we were saying with the, the way you talk piece and you know, adding this, if the Lord wills, it's possible for prayer to, to just become kind of something superstitious. You know, you don't really do anything differently. You just kind of work the same way you normally work, and you add this little superstitious prayer of, and God, please help me. But it doesn't have to be that. It can be something that's not shallow at all. It can be something that's very pro- profound and not superstitious in any way. One of the most, the, one of the least superstitious men of his generation, one of the most scientific men of his generation was Benjamin Franklin. And there's this remarkable ep- episode, you've probably heard of it, uh, at the Constitutional Convention, where Franklin, who is not this pious person at all, he's basically a heretic, stands up and gives this amazing speech on why we all need to start praying together 
every day. They've been deadlocked for five weeks, and he stands up and says, we need to start these meetings every day with prayer. And the verse he uses as his text is this exact verse that we're looking at this morning, Psalm 127. He says, we've, we've been told in the sacred writings that unless the Lord builds the house, those who labor build in vain. He says, I believe that. And I believe, he makes the exact connection we made earlier. He said, I believe that if we don't call out to him, we're going to be no better than the builders of Babel. That it'll all come to nothing. If you haven't read this speech before, you should read it when you go home today. I meant to, to bring it today. I forgot it. But the, you know, the best line is, I've lived, sir, a long time, and I have become convinced that God governs in the affairs of men. And if a sparrow cannot fall to the ground without his notice, is it probable that an empire can rise without his aid? Franklin says, if we believe that what we're doing is important, and we know, we know from the revolution that just happened that what we're trying to do can't happen without God's assistance, then we're going to pray. We're going to express that belief in prayer. It's a second test and barometer. If you believe it, you're going to pray. And conversely, if you're not praying, you probably don't believe it. You're probably just trying to do it on your own. The third and final test or barometer as to whether you've made this shift away from vanity and toward trusting God and collaborating with God. If you've made this shift from the the not-so-smart way to the smart way. The third test is the way you sleep. And this is the one that Solomon mentions directly. The way you sleep is a good test of whether you're trusting God to help you or not. And he says, you know, that he has that anxious toil bit. You know, you're the, he compares this person who's going to bed so late and getting up so early to this other person who's trusting God and gets a great night of sleep. He, he says, God gives to his beloved sleep. Uh, there's a poem by Elizabeth Barrett Browning calls this the greatest line in all the Psalms. And it is. It's beautiful. He gives to his beloved sleep. And it's a test. It's a test of whether you're trusting him or not. I remember when we first came to New York, the, the first time for me to attend seminary up at uh, Union Seminary up at Columbia. We, um, you know, we, we like a lot of people, came here not knowing anybody, hadn't seen the apartment that we were going to move into before we got here, which turned out to be all of 250 square feet. Um, and we had just, we had packed everything we owned in a 1990 Camry and driven across country, came across the George Washington Bridge, parked the car, you know, here we are in New York, watch out. And the plan was for me to go to seminary full-time and for Brittany to work full-time. And Brittany had to work full-time if we were going to be able to you know, pay rent and eat and those sorts of luxuries. And so um, she starts applying for jobs. We were both a couple years out of college. She had no work experience. She had a, a Bible degree from a Christian school and no work experience except two years working in youth ministry at a church. So she starts applying for jobs, and uh, after a week or so, she, you know, was really worried about it and couldn't sleep because, you know, we're not going to find anything, we're not going to have any money. If we do find something, it's going to be really far away. It's not going to pay enough. You know, this isn't going to work out. And so we talked about it, and what we decided was that we felt we didn't know. Like I'm not, I'm not saying God told us to come to New York. We didn't know for sure, but we felt the best that we knew how that we were supposed to be in New York, that we were submitted to God, that we were doing what God wanted us to do, that we were following him. We felt that as much as we knew how, our lives were surrendered to him. 
And so we felt that it was his problem, that it was his responsibility to find her a job. And so what we decided was, okay, you're just going to apply for a set number of positions. And we set that threshold at 30. We said, you're going to apply for 30 jobs, just the first 30 jobs that seem even remotely plausible. You know, not like this is it. Just try to get to 30. That's your only objective, get to 30 jobs. And then we'll turn it over to God, and it'll be up to God to actually find you the job or not. Now, again, this goes back to this thing of what you actually do isn't that different, but the way you're doing it is totally different. Because it turns out, funny enough, it's actually not that hard to apply for 30 jobs. What's hard is finding a job. What's hard is getting yourself a job, bearing that responsibility, feeling that weight. You know, there's that that saying, heavy is the head, the word's the crown. And the idea here is you say, well, that's not me. That head is not mine. That's your head. Your head is the head that wears the crown. You're the one that's in charge of this project. I'm just your little worker bee, your little clerk, and I'll do the busy work of filling out these 30 applications. But then you have to find the job. That's up to you. And after that, she slept fine. And in a couple of weeks, she got one offer out of those 30 jobs, which were all over the city, by the way. She got one and only one offer, which was the only job that was right around the corner from our house. No commute at all. Full time, full great pay, full benefits at Barnard College in the alumni department. She had no connections there. Every other woman in that department was an alumni of Barnard. She had no business getting that job. God just gave it to her. Don't you want God to just give you stuff? I mean, don't you, really, don't you want that? And don't you know that he can? And don't you know that he can do it while you sleep? See, that's the whole point. While you're sleeping, he's still working. He's not like us. He doesn't need to sleep. There's that verse in Isaiah 40 that said, Do you not know? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God. He does not grow tired or weary. We have to sleep. He doesn't. He lets us sleep while he gives to us. That's the other translation of that verse, by the way. You can translate it two, word, two ways. You can say, he gives to his beloved sleep. Or you can also say, he gives to his beloved in their sleep. He gives them gifts while they're sleeping. And Solomon's saying, isn't this smarter? Isn't this a lot smarter way to approach life? To just turn it over to him, who can work 24-7, even while you're sleeping, and then go to bed. And then sleep a normal amount rather than cutting it short and let him take care of it. Isn't that a lot better way to live? And if you can't do that, if you can't let go, if you can't stop going to bed late and getting up early and trying so hard and thinking that it all depends on you, then what Solomon says is it's because you're vain. Let's pray. God, we don't want to do things on our own. We want to work with you and alongside of you. We're honored that you let us play a part. We don't want to just sit there and do nothing either. But this business of just trying to do it all by ourselves and feeling all the weight of it ourselves and thinking that we're responsible for the ultimate outcome, we want to give that up. We want to let you be the one that bears responsibility for the final outcome of events We want to do our part, we want to be obedient, we want to be faithful, and we want to go to sleep and turn the rest over to you. I pray that you'd help us to do that. I pray that you'd impress the truth of this onto our hearts. I pray that you'd show us how and give us the courage to assess ourselves honestly as to whether we've made this shift or not. 
We pray these things in Jesus' name, who was fully surrendered to you in every way. Amen.